Welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. I'm really happy today to be joined by a longtime friend of mine. She's an accomplished songwriter, author, speaker, inventor, and she is the founder of Urban Farming, a nonprofit dedicated to fostering programs for access to healthy food for everyone, regardless of their social economic status. Taja Zabil, thank you so much for being on Free Thinking today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. Now, you know, let's let's back up and give some people a little bit of information about your background, because you have a really storied history in the music industry and as a dancer and as a songwriter. But then as an author and an inventor, we'll get to that in a second. Let's start off at songwriting. Where, where did you grow up at? Well, I, you know, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and not so much dancing, but I got my first record deal with Prince. And um, so singing and songwriting you know, I, I started early. I was singing in five different bands in Minneapolis before uh, Prince signed me. And uh, so I worked really hard at the craft and he gave me my first record deal. And the first song that I that I wrote called Love is Contagious became a big hit right out of the box. Oh, that's unbelievable. How old were you when you started with him? Can I ask you? Well, you know, I'm ageless and weightless. So. Ageless, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I'm just sitting here. You're a little kid back then. I was a youngster. <laughs> And what was that like? As a, did you tour with Prince at all? You know, when he when I, I it took a year for me to sign the deal. When he offered me the deal originally, he wanted me to be a part of a new girls group that he was putting together. And I said, "Listen, I'm a solo artist." So um, he let me be a solo artist, but I but I ended up negotiating my deal for a year and. Yeah, he took me out on the road when he was touring Purple Rain. And so a couple of times I went on stage during that time, but I never really toured with him. I just really went on my own and did my own thing. And uh, it, it was just a, an amazing time in my life. Really, really <laughs> wonderful. So it has to be phenomenal memories. I mean, you know, and so you work with Prince and then after working with Prince, then what did you move to next? Well, you know, I started songwriting for Warner Chapel Music and uh, and then I signed briefly signed a deal in London. I lived in London for a while and then I signed a deal with Sony 550, which was a major deal. I had uh, nine major recording companies bidding for me and, and it went up to an astronomical number. And um, so I, I started recording that particular CD with Sony 550 in Detroit, Michigan, which is what brought me to, uh, eventually brought me to urban farming, which we'll get into. Sure. I mean, I'm just trying to fill in some of the blanks in between. So you've got this incredible career going on in music. What then made you decide to even think about going down the path of, you know, food or urban farming? You know, I, I think it's a calling. Ultimately, that's what that would sort of be the the, the category. But um, yeah, I mean, I had had amazing times. I was songwriting with Burt Bacharach and Nile Rodgers and Tom Bell and and amazing people. And uh, I was recording my CD for Sony called Toys of Vanity in Detroit, Michigan. And I started to become acquainted with all of the job loss and the just the undue amounts of unused land. There were 17,000 acres of unused land in the city at the time, and I think are probably more at this point, which really equates to about 60,000 abandoned homes and lots. Um, and I had lived on a farm briefly in, in my early teens. And um, so when I saw all of that unused land, I thought, why are people going hungry 
when there's all this unused land. So we just uh, we just started. I started planting gardens. And so what came out of gardens ended up turning into the urban farming nonprofit. That's right. I did some test gardens in 2004 and 2005. I, I initially uh, launched the charity with three with three community gardens of free food, meaning that people, whether they worked on the gardens or not, they they could come and pick that food at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You could come at midnight if your family needed food. And that particular concept really took off. So from those three gardens in 2005, we, we now have over 66,000 gardens around the world that are part of the urban farming global food chain. We did not install them all, but we inspired them all and they are all on our global map. Uh, but we did we did install hundreds of community gardens and also edible walls um, in phase one of our mission. Let's start. Let's go back to the gardens now. Initially, was the gardens were you were you planting gardens that had plants that would lead to food, or were you just planting gardens to beautify a landscape? No, these were vegetable plants. These were literal gardens of food. And so the average size was 20 by 20 feet. And our largest garden, uh, which was at the epicenter of the 1967 riots in Detroit on Gladstone and Linwood, eventually was a block long one way and a block long the other way. And it, and it took us 180 semi-trucks of topsoil and compost to create that particular uh, garden. But during the harvest season, between 50 to 75 people and families would be freely picking the food and you you know i'd see kids running around and pointing to the tomatoes and saying look you know that's look mommy that's what's on the burgers at mcdonald's you know because they're, they're learning about where their food comes from in a in a whole different way swan so now okay so you start off with three and that starts to swell were you did you become an advocate running around in different cities and saying look what we did in Detroit? how did this yeah. move forward? explain this to us all Yes, I did. Um, well, you know, Atlantic Records really got involved from the beginning, which was awesome. And they called up T.I. and T.I. became involved and he helped and spread the word. And and I think between between Atlantic Records getting involved and Zach Brown also in the in the in the country western arena um, got involved. And I think between that and the whole idea that the gardens are free, I mean, people would come up to me. And they were literally in communities all around this country crying because they didn't know how they were going to feed their families. And so here's this garden of free food and it just takes the stress level down and brings the happiness level up. So that concept that it was free and you don't have to work on the garden to get the food. There are no fences. Um, people said in the beginning, you're, you're going to have to put fences up, you know, or people will steal the food. And I said, the food is free. There's nothing to steal. Um, so that touched people's hearts. So I think the combination of, of that, the growing and giving, that there's no catch and um, the, you know, and the various celebrities that got involved, including Prince uh, and me running around championing the cause. And you also put me on your show. Um, these things were tremendously helpful for, for really um, creating a, a new trend. I mean, we we created a new global trend. But I mean, you take a look at what's going on right now across the country. We have food lines in this country that we've not seen in 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And there are families going to bed at night wondering where that meal is going to come from. This seems to me you know, like an incredible opportunity right now to to, you know, revitalize this entire movement 
and get people to remember that, you know, even back to World War II, we had those things like Victory Gardens and things like that. Right now, it seems like this would be something that could be implemented immediately to start, you know, lessening some of this burden of uh, feeling like, you know, you're deprived of food. So why can't we get this going? And what have you been trying? I know you've been trying, but what's been the pushback? Well, you know, we can get it going. I, I'm glad you mentioned the Victory Gardens um, because during World War II, 20 million Americans uh, grew Victory Gardens and they grew almost half of our nation's produce supply. The Ministry of Agriculture back then had a motto that said, you know, one garden per household. And so that was a wartime effort. And, you know, sort of segueing into what's going on right now and also looking at our food supply chain, um, before COVID, our food supply chain had management issues. Um, you know, we, we, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we were wasting 40 million tons of food every single year, and it was costing us uh, $161 billion a year. So that's before COVID. That's a management issue. Um, now we're, you know, and we had food deserts for decades, which is what I was addressing with urban farming. Now, um, you know, we, I mean, the, 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 a study out of Columbia University just said that our, that our poverty rate has risen from 15% to 16.7% just from February to September of this year. And this is even after the, the aid. So the idea of growing our own food is really important right now for our country and for the food security of our country. So getting that campaign out and people are sort of starting to naturally do that, but getting that campaign out is, is, is really critical. Um, the supply well, I mean, chain- you, know, you, say, you say people are starting to naturally do that, but I don't think with any kind of a concerted effort, because again, I'm looking at the news every single day, and from Dallas to Chicago to New York, there are food pantry lines that are miles long, where people are waiting to just get a small basket of food. And I mean, it seems to me like if we were to make a concerted effort right this minute to reinvigorate this whole idea of taking you know, space that's not being used for anything else, and turning it into a victory garden against COVID, you know, we could in, in one growth cycle be at a point where you'd be feeding at least, you know, a large percentage of those who've gone without and feeding them with really good nutritious food rather than some of the garbage that is made available in some of the inner cities. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you should run for president. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> because this is what we've been getting the word out about this whole time is really creating food security for families and individuals. Um, we started by by planting these these community gardens, hundreds of them around the United States. We partnered. We did a public and private partnership with Craft Craft and the Triscuit Cracker, and we planted 65 community gardens in 21 cities across the United States. It was a two year project that Ellen put on her show and and promoted all all during that time and and it really showed me the value and the impact that public and private partnerships can have when they put their heads together and want to put out a message that serves us all really well. This would be a great chance for something like that to happen right now. And not just for COVID, just for any, any time, you know, food security. We have to look at, you know, I'm going to talk a lot in this interview about management and healing our world from the root. We really have to look at our agricultural practices, 
I mean, that's something that that ties into the food supply chain as well, because conventional agricultural practices you, utilizing chemical fertilizers and pesticides has, has left our soil almost completely devoid of, of critical microorganisms, and it releases carbon into the air. So if you check out this Netflix uh, documentary called Kiss the Ground with Woody Harrelson, you'll see that with regenerative, regenerative agricultural uh, methods, we can not only restore our soil, but we can recapture um, that carbon. And our food, the, the quality of the food will be much better. Organic food is on whole about 25% 20, 20 to 20, 25 to 27% higher um, in nutrients than than food that's been slaughtered with with chemicals and pesticides. So um, you know, th these these things are really important for us to teach in our schools, to teach in our in our uh, not only inner city schools, but in rural areas um, where I know farmers are struggling um, with with, you know, having the, keeping their kids uh, on the farm instead of moving to the city and not being interested in, in farming. But farming is awesome. And regenerative farming can yield so much more per acre as well as vertical farming. So um, and, and it'll, it'll contribute to our food security uh, globally. So these are things that we need to look at, not just during this time of COVID, but also right right now for the future. Natasha, even before this time of COVID though, I will tell you, I don't remember hearing or having conversations or hearing conversations on this issue. I just don't remember. I don't remember seeing it on the nightly news. I don't remember seeing it on a special, you know, and though maybe there is a special on Netflix, you know, I'd like to see what that, what that viewership has been. But we, how do we snatch America up? It's going to take something like COVID to snatch us up by our heels to say, wait a second. You know what I mean? There are people, there are thousands of people a day going hungry in America. And here is an opportunity to change that dynamic. And well, go ahead. Sorry. Yes. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm at 100% agree with you. I, through all my experiences, boots on the ground, dealing with this issue over the last 16 years, I wrote a book, it's called From the Root, uh, a memoir and a philosophy for balance in our world. And what I do is I cover key areas that I discovered through my work, uh, uh, just a myriad of, of, of uh, challenges within um, severely impoverished communities, both in, in rural areas and, and urban areas and in some suburban areas as well. And so I put forth a roadmap of solutions um, for healing our world from the root, because you know, if we don't heal our relationships, if we don't heal our management styles from the root, then it's—I always say—it's like we're suturing a wound without cleaning it first, and it will go septic. So, what does septic look like? It looks like riots. It looks like protests. It looks like people who are, you know, in conflict. And we—I—I I, I say that we have—you know—we haven't treated each other well for for centuries on this planet. And it's like a, a very brutal game of ping pong, what you know, with the wars and the slavery and, and um, genocides, et cetera. And um, we've created a lot of pain and brokenness that gets that gets you know handed down generation after generation until people don't even understand why they're so mad or why they think they're superior or they need to dominate the world um, but something's driving them and they they haven't gotten to the root of it so we you know i talk about this in the book i cover areas of healthy thinking healthy 
uh, communication, which you and I have talked about a lot, um, healthy eating, healthy fitness, healthy finances, healthy education, and healthy families. These are the primary areas that need to be brought into balance. And I just want to say something. Before COVID, our, um, the United States was so out of balance in these areas that it was literally, according to the U.S. Accountability Office, costing us $6.2 trillion every single year. Crime alone was costing the United States up to uh, $3.4 trillion every single year. Obesity, poverty, educational achievement gaps, all areas that need to be brought into balance because they have been mismanaged. So the educational aspect that you're talking about right now and really having a campaign to educate our societies um, is critical if we don't want to become extinct. But unfortunately, we seem to have a, you know, we are so deeply entrenched right now with a chasm that goes so deep, I can't even see the bottom of it with the us against them attitude as a society that, you know, when with the leadership that we have in position right now, you know, we have those who, I, I often ask this question about those who hate so much, what is it that they want? I mean, do we want to live in a world that's dystopian where you're running around digging out of garbage cans and shooting a person you know, from a quarter block away um, and, and hiding under a, a burnt out shell of a building? Is that what we literally have evolved into as mankind? Or are we evolving into a world that collectively understands how much we need each other to get to the next level? And I wonder, I mean, what do you think? Where, which way are we headed? I mean, look at look at the state of this election right now. Look at the state of America right now. Look at the fact that there are people punching each other, standing in lines to exercise their right to vote. I mean, where are we headed? What do you think? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I this gets again to the root of the problem. In in my book, I I, I cite a, another book called All God's Children, and um, it really really depicts a, a, a family that that uh, whose ancestry came here through slavery and then became a crime family all the way through every generation. And um, but the reporter who wrote it, um, he you know, he, he traced it back to the area of, of the United States before slaves were even brought there, which was called Bloody Edgewood. And um, it was primarily various people from Scotland and Ireland who had just come over from their own horrific set of circumstances. So if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, you kind of get an idea of all the king's horses and all the king's men just railing through villages, raping and pillaging and killing. And so what, what does that do to a family when that happens to a community? And generation after generation, if they've not been able to heal from it, then they come over here and then they wreak havoc on their neighbors. I mean, there was such anarchy in Bloody Edgefield at the time before slaves were brought in that people would just walk into bars and start shooting up. They would shoot each other if you stepped on their foot the wrong way. And then you bring in the slaves. So imagine how they were treated. So we have to look at our histories. We have to look at what has shaped us and get to the bottom of it. Um, you asked- well, when you, when you say, let, me, let me, sorry, let me interrupt you, but before we go further, but if you do take a look back, you're talking about right now, literally almost 350 years. I mean, let's go back to the late 16, 
you know, early in the late 1500s when, when people first started coming here. So 1619, let's say that's when the first slaves got here. So let's look at 1590. We have been the part of a society whose entire history has been bought, has been built on destruction, hatred, violence, murder, mayhem. And I know, I get you very clearly when you talk about what's happened when when we brought, started bringing slaves in, we at least directed all of that angst against one group for a period of time because it was legal to kill, mutilate, rape, do whatever you wanted to a slave. So, and of course, also to Native Americans. So, you know, the focus became not on Western Europeans that we slaughtered, but on them, on those people. And then we continue to do that for 300 years. We're doing it today. I mean, though we, if you look at, you know, the urban, you know, uh, desert and when it comes to food, I mean, you know, big business understands that liquor stores and pawn shops are as destructive as a noose. It's not, don't, let's, not, let's not for one second believe that <clears throat> big business doesn't understand that no nutrient fast food and no vegetables and no organics sold to those people will help to keep them down. They get that. It's not like we're, we're, we're teaching something we're speaking to, you know, acquire. They get that. They understand exactly what they have been doing when it comes to making sure that inner cities only have liquor stores and, and money exchange places. Come on. This is part of the plan. But when you say that, then people turn around and go, oh, no, that's just a dumb minority again, acting like we all are racist and hatred. Stop for a second. I often say, you know, please forgive me, but if every Black person in America jumped on a boat and went back to Africa tomorrow, Italians better look out. And then Spaniards better look out. And then Polish people better look out. Then German people better look out. Then, because yeah, literally the idea of hating to death, I think is part of the genetic code of Western Europe. And part of the reason why this experiment that we had here is never, ever, 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 ever left a test tube. Well, you know, you, you bring up some really important issues. Um, we, we have been doing this to each other for centuries, as I mentioned. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, when we, look at, when we look at what gets handed down in terms of traditional thought and traditional ideas that are handed down family to family, based off of whatever atrocity ha happened to that family, um, we can begin to see why people think the way that they do. And so, again, getting to the root of the problem is, is really important. Our ways of communicating are virtually, and unfortunately at this point, largely verbal slaughter, of which I used to be very good. But until I realized, and I had my own like on the knees moment, that verbal slaughter doesn't serve me well and it doesn't serve others well. Um, but I had to go through my own internal inventory, which was tedious and took a long time to clean out certain things, old ways of thinking, what was piloting me, et cetera. Um, it sounds namby-pamby, but when, you talk, when we talk about business, big business and what's piloting um, some big business, because there are some 
businesses now that are B corporations that are concerned with the environment and people and how their products and, and methods affect others. But um, what's driving big business when you get down to the bottom of it, it's, it's all the same for all of us. We're all human. And if, if certain nutrients, so to speak, um, we're, we didn't get in our soul, in our spirit, then it, it manifests. And it manifests in ways where, oh, I feel like I have to dominate the world or have the most money. Otherwise, I'm a loser. And so are you, you know, if you don't have all these things, which is so far away from the truth. So um, listen, the war uh, strategy, the war business model, it, and and a lot of the business models of of some of the major businesses that have um, wreaked havoc havoc upon our environment and our planet and our people, um, unfortunately, really illustrates how poor uh, a business they actually are. I mean, if you look at the Institute for the um, Economics of Peace. Uh, you know, they did a study in 2010, if we had just been 25% more peaceful as a world, we would have reaped an additional $2 trillion to our world economy. So um, the economics of peace are far more abundant than the ex economics of war and domination. And, um, and I'll say this too, never underestimate the power my gosh when we did this project with with craft and trisket we created a global trend and people were touched i was touched when I, just by putting in one garden how people from the community came up to me and said we're smiling more we're laughing more we're more relaxed because of this garden so never underestimate the power of the things that touch the human spirit which is something we all have we've seen these moments where it's like a Saul to Paul in, in the, a biblical reference where Saul is on his way to kill a bunch of Christians and then he gets knocked off his donkey by an angel and he has an awakening. And now he's writing, you know, most of the New Testament. Um, I, I just say that lots of people have had these awakening moments that are human moments. Something struck them in the core of their spirit. These are the things that we need to go for every time we embrace each other, include each other championing each other's dreams, we are sending that energy out. Every time we're focusing more on the solution rather than the problem, just like in Tomorrowland with George Clooney, turn off that TV show or that Netflix show that is portraying people arguing. Don't support it because that's not the way that you want your friends to treat you or your family or your coworkers. So turn it off and don't support it. Support the things that are serving all of us well. And that's when we'll start to see an abundant future. And I know we can have it. I know it. Hey, look, I'm going to do another thing. I have to pay a little bit, pay a couple of bills. So I'm going to take a little break. Let's take a break and let's come back and let's talk about, you know, again, how do we address this food shortage in America? And how do we address the idea of, you touched on it, but I want to talk about it at length, about re-educating a generation of the value of service through food. So let's talk about that too. Okay, I'm going to take a little break. Got to pay some bills. You've been listening to Free Thinking with Montel. My guest today is Taja Seville, who's an author, songwriter, speaker, inventor, and also the founder of the Herb of, of Urban Farming. And you're going to hear a lot more about that when we come back. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back right after this. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. Today's guest is Taja Seville. She's a singer, a songwriter, author, speaker, inventor. She's the founder of the Urban Farming which is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering programs for access to healthy food for everyone, regardless of your social economic status. 
And let's start right there, Tasha, because again, you've already helped create and 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 uh, create the formation of of urban gardens around America. How do we get that, especially right now, to just you know reinvigorate itself and, and make people like you know? I, I again, I watch the television, I watch the news, and I see. You know, like last night I watched, I saw a line that, that seemed to, to stretch for miles of cars waiting at a food bank to pick up some food. And I thought to myself, well, you know, not that I'm trying to say I want you to work for your food, but, you know, right now these people who are short, who aren't working, short on food meaning, who aren't working, if they just put in one hour a day at an urban garden, you know, within the next four months, there would be a windfall ready to be picked a food that could probably, I don't know, you know, you, you talk about it with 20 by 20 feeding 75 families. Hell, let's just, let's just start making multiple 20 by 20s all over cities where there's vacant lots. And think about the number of people you could actually feed with a basket of food every day. How do we get people to start thinking that way? Well, you know, it's, it's a campaign just like anything else, you know, just like the Victory Garden campaign or the Liberty Garden campaign during World War One, Victory Gardens World War Two, it's a campaign. And um, and I like I like public and private partnerships coming together to get the word out and to help people to uh, start doing this. Um, growing food, you can grow food at home, even if you're in an apartment, you can grow food on a wall, you can grow an entire garden on your wall. Um, okay, talk a little bit about that. Talk about that wall, the wall garden, the vertical garden. Vertical gardens are so cool because we started them in 2008. Um, we worked with a wonderful um, architect named Emily Osler and um, Joyce Lipinski was, was really spearheading the pro project on the ground in Los Angeles. We put four 20 by 10 foot edible walls throughout um, Skid Row in Los Angeles in 2008. One at a school, um, two at, at facilities for formerly um, homeless people and one at a food bank. Getting getting into food banks, um, you know, food banks right now could be handing out kits to people, seeds and kits, so they can start growing their own food, in addition to the food that they're handing out um, and instructions. Um, somehow, with urban farming, we even through COVID, we've been able to help over a thousand families so far this year start growing their own food, and they they really expressed a lot of appreciation for that because ultimately people want to take control of their own food supply, especially when times are tough. So going back to it, it's the campaign. It's a part of a larger campaign that I'm really, uh, you know, talking about a lot, which is healing our world from the root, um, but certainly a, an integral part of it. Um, growing our own food, hashtag, get, you know, just it needs, the word needs to get out. Um, we need to put it in schools. We need to, to, to just get it out in in uh, you can put it in 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 television shows in music and you know people who are talking and politicians should absolutely be talking about it right now one of the things that I that I never really hear a lot about during this covid um, time is our immune systems and supporting our immune systems with healthy eating um, I, I see that there's a lot focused on on vaccines and whatnot, but not on the immune system and not on how you can, you know, it's important to stop eating sugar and sugary drinks and fast foods and, and start getting the, the, the most wholesome and healthy food that you can during this time. This is 
this is critical. I mean, obesity and diabetes are just ravaging our country. According to um, the American Diabetes Association, uh, diabetes is costing each state approximately $6 billion a year. It's like $327 billion uh, that, that diabetes costs the United States in 2017. So again, out of balance, um, where's, where is our management, our good management style? Um, all of these things are tied together. Food, how do we get it? I, I put a, listen, urban farming, I want urban farming to be out of business. Our goal is to create an abundance of food for all in our generation. We focus on the solution. We don't say we're trying to eradicate hunger. We, we frame it in a way where we focus on the solution, create an abundance of food for all in our generation. We want to be out of business. I'd love the food banks to be out of business, not because I want to put people out of business, but because there's no more hungry people. And our kids are able to say to us, hey, mom, dad, what was that like when you guys but, had but, hunger on the planet? But if you if you approach, I mean, I, I, just while you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, well, what if I approached uh, McDonald's or I approached uh, Burger King and I said, for every single franchise that you have in the country, I want you to make one of your walls a vertical wall to feed people. So your employees come in in the morning, they take the 15 minutes it takes to go ahead and do whatever they have to do to, to check on your wall. And you should grow food there every day. So all the tomatoes that are used on your hamburgers, you got off that wall. And those are tomatoes that are actually now cutting the price of the hamburger that you're selling. That meat that you're selling, you know, is bad meat anyway. However, you know, but, you know, maybe instead of when for every, every bag that you give out of a burger you sold, you give out three, a tomato, a cucumber, and a lemon. I don't know. But if you just gave away something so that the person pulling up understood, oh, wow, that that business is giving something back to the community, something that's healthy. Absolutely. This is what I love about innovation. These are the, the creative ideas that come when you start focusing on solutions. You know, they, they if they didn't put a wall in their store, they could put it in a school. You know, every every place that you have McDonald's, put a, put a, a wall in the school with a whole training, you know, or somewhere, a community center. I mean, these we are so intelligent. We're so, so intelligent, the human race. And, you know, we have the money. We can lift everyone out of poverty. We can live in abundance, and we can. And and out of that comes more innovation and creativity. Um, we can certainly do it if we're, you know, we're we're launching forty-two thousand low-orbiting satellites into space right now. So apparently, we have some money. I mean, we can absolutely lift people out of poverty and 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 really get the tool these healthy healthy educational tools into into uh, as a, into our consciousness as an integral part of our way of living um, that's a great idea i love it you know i mean let's let's we keep brainstorming trigger other ideas but but, but, but again if i walk into the president of mcdonald's and say that he's going to laugh me right out of his office cuz i could no, walk i could walk into him and say look this is something you could do you could add this to the franchise fee person wants to build a franchise of McDonald's on the XYZ street corner, well, then you pick that school, you know, four blocks away and you go in and you put in a, you know, like you say, a six by 20 or a 10 by 20 foot wall. And that's your responsibility to make sure you keep that up for the next year. And I would say, I would say, don't, you know, only speak victory into your ideas. So don't just shoot it down and say he would shoot me down. Say, I think you would be really excited about it because it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful idea. It's essentially what Triscuit did and Kraft. They spent millions of dollars 
promoting the idea of growing your own food. And had they kept it going for 10 years, we probably wouldn't have any hunger in our in our country right now. So the public and private partnerships and the value of them is 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 so important. And we need to speak victory into each other's dreams and ideas. Uh, there's great abundance in that financial abundance in it. I'm not just talking about namby pamby. You know, I'm talking about real the real economics of being supportive of each other and getting out of these conflict, you know, sort of models and get into more peaceful models where we're supporting and everything that we're doing as any company, make sure that it's serving others, not only your company, but others well, meaning the products are good for people, um, good for the environment, not, you know, uh, throwing, you know, 40 million tons of industrial wastewater into the ground over a 20 year period. Those things are, are brazenly uh, just horrific. And and so uh, having different business practices is, is very important. So I think that McDonald's would be very excited about your idea. Well, maybe we should go in and talk to them. You know, recently we've been talking about, you know, helping a particular school district across the country to reinvigorate the idea of farming and agriculture in high schools. Uh, you know, we, we literally have now have a generation that wants to be either a TikTok star or a video star and nobody wants to do a lot of work. How do we reach out to our younger generation right now and say to them, you know, there's no shame in your game if you decide to food to feed the masses? I think that it's a com it's a combined effort of, of all the businesses, including the entertainment business of which I'm a part. Um, the entertainment business has to take responsibility for the messaging that that they're putting out. Um, they, I, I turn the channels. I, I over and over, I see, you know, shows that are promoting conflict, people tearing each other's hair out, fighting. There's always got to be drama. Uh, you know, I I just, that's not what we want. I, I, I cited Tomorrowland for a reason, because it's the, it's the best depiction of the future I've ever seen, the movie with George Clooney. And uh, it really took the human race to just turn that TV off, that bad news, all of that trauma, and, and focus on the solution. And then it, it produced this, what was Walt Disney's vision, actual vision, was this innovative, creative, abundant, um, inclusive society that that really thrives. So, um, you know, it's important that ag going back to the agriculture and the education in schools, I think it's an exciting time for students and, and we have wonderful ways to invigorate and, and, and really capture the, the inspiration and motivation for students to get involved with agriculture because they will literally be on the cutting edge of food insecurity for our planet through vertical growing and regenerative growing methods. So, um, I'm excited about the project that we've been talking about, and it, it, it really does need to unroll across the country, across the world. Yeah, hopefully this is, I, mean, I know we're still waiting for some feedback right now from them to see if these guys are willing to step onto the plate and do what it takes. But I mean, I guess, I guess it's going to also require you and I having to do a lot of work of going out and finding some sponsors and people who are willing to check themselves at the door and recognize that this is probably the most important thing that they can be working on. You know, we touched on it, you touched on it for just a second about the fact that the obesity and diabetes epidemic uh, that has hit inner cities. And I know over the last couple of years, I mean, I have heard and seen programs that have tried to get that message to resonate 
But for some reason, there's some disconnect. How do we get this to finally make people understand that you are proud of what you eat? If all you're eating is food like the president of the United States, and you can take a look at that's what you're going to end up like, you know, a person who's got a compromised immune system, a person who's morbidly obese, a person who is really not at the height of his game. But that seems to be the example that so many of these people want to follow. How do we get this message to resonate, especially, and I'm just going to say for a second, especially in the African-American community, there's, to me, we've been talking about this now long enough. I mean, you know, come on now, you know, the fact that obesity is rampant in the African-American community, we've been talking about this. Stop, listen. You know, we've been talking about diabetes in the African-American community. Stop, listen. How do we get people to, I mean, do I have to have a rapper or adopt that TI and other people write a song and, and, and do a tour? Or do I just, what do I have to do? I think that it's a concerted effort once again. You know, I was asked to speak on a, on a Kellogg's panel about this issue, about getting um, the message of healthy eating and healthy foods into the cafeterias of our schools. And, um, you know, sort of at the end of the panel, one of the things that I said is that it's it's great to put um, healthy food into schools and to, to talk about all these ways of, of trying to engage students. But we have to remember that as soon as any student steps out of the classroom or out off school grounds at the end of the school day, there's a whole other school that they're engrossed in that's far more exciting. <laughs> and that's the school of music and entertainment and video games. So it's a concerted effort with, with every you know, actor, actress, uh, music artist, uh, heads of labels, the platforms that allow various messages to get out, to come together and say, listen, you know, we want to be better architects of our world. Here's how we can all come together. Um, and, and just basically, we don't have to wait for leaders, but we do need to, as creative souls, I'm a creative soul, we need to, to think about what we're creating as people who are owners of platforms, whether it's a network or um, whatever it is, think about what, what messaging you're putting out into the world. Um, so, and it's gotta be fun. So yeah, TI helped us a lot. And so did Zach Brown and Kiki Palmer and Prince and Richard Lewis you know, um, they help to get the word out and, and motivate people. So it has to be that again on a really large scale and include other public and private partnerships like the wonderful one that we had with Kraft and Triscuit and Coca-Cola and Home Depot and all these companies that, that got on board with supporting growing your own food. Why did they, did they, are they still involved or did some of them fall off? And if they did, why did they fall out? Well, what happened is we, I, we literally created a global trend. I mean, when I started in, the, in this arena, um, community gardeners really couldn't get arrested. I mean, I had community gardening organizations all around the country tell me that they would call their mayor's offices and they couldn't get a call back. But once we were on your show, the Montel Williams show, and we, we were on CNN and we were on Fox and, and especially with Ellen promoting it all summer, we tipped the scale. There was like a Jenga moment and we created a global trend trend just we had over 30,000 media stories worldwide and um, so you know just getting the word out even more it needs to be sustained but once we created that it did create competition within the field um, there were there were other companies then that um, you know wanted to do gardening projects and they would do them with other gardening organizations uh, but we need to revitalize it and it needs to be an integral part of our world moving forward as we design our mo world moving 
forward. So it can't just be a trend. It can't just be like, oh, you know, we're going to do this. And then, uh, you know, 50 years from now, people are going to look back and just like we look back on the on the World War II victory gardens. Um, it's a way of life, man. It's really, it's a way of life and it's healing from the root. You know, it's healing from the root. It's, uh, I'll say it over and over. Management, healing from the root and, and personal responsibility for our actions, our words. You and I talk a lot about, I talk a lot about healthy communication. We've had those conversations. The fundamentals of, of healthy communication, um, non-judgmental, really uh, learning what those fundamentals are. Uh, that is has been extremely helpful for me in my life with with my friends, family, coworkers, um, and within myself. Have you have you reached out to the Gates Foundation with any or any requests about something like this? I have not done that. So, yeah. Hey, Gates Foundation, <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk for sure. Talk about some of the other projects that you've worked on and and how they've impacted communities. Well, you know, I'll never forget when we put this garden in it on on uh, Gladstone and Linwood in Detroit and and all over in New Jersey, people coming up to me crying and um, just to have free access without any paperwork, whether you worked in the garden or not. Uh, stories on and on and on. I remember we were putting a garden in on Martin Luther King and Third Street in in Detroit and. Um, I, it was a it's a very high homeless area, and I was um, you know I had a pamphlet. I was telling people the week before come down to this corner, and we're putting a garden in. And and one of the homeless um, men set, started cussing me out. You know, he's just like you know f you. And uh, and luckily I did not take it to heart because what I recognized was something that I had experienced, which is a lack of hope. And how sad and 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 what a feeling of desolation that is, um, and and not wanting someone to come and wave a magic wand unless it was really going to happen. So the 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 uh, the next week he he did come down and we we put that garden in. We dropped two semi trucks of topsoil and compost, spread them out with a bobcat, started planting food, let everyone know that the food is free for the community. And by the end of of that particular event, um, that gentleman came up to me and he was crying. And he said, you know, you weren't, you weren't playing, <laughs> you, you really, you know, and there's no catch. So I can't even begin. I mean, it would, it would be another hour for me to recount all of the stories of people coming up to us and, and sharing what the gardens have meant to them. But um, I, I will say that, that in phase two right now, we're focusing on people growing their own food and really, really having gardens in their homes or, um, you know, some sort of planters in their apartments uh, and taking control of their food security. Have you thought about doing maybe a documentary and going back to some of the places that you put these gardens in and documenting how useful and how the community, how important they have become to a community? Absolutely. I mean, in, um, in the early days, Albert Mazels was going to do a documentary with us and we were trying to raise the money for that. We, we weren't able to raise the money, but we've been a part of various doc documentaries. Um, QD3, Quincy Jones uh, III um, did a, a documentary called Feel Rich and we're, we're in that documentary. We've been in a few others. And, uh, but having a real documentary on this charity, how it started, um, would 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 be wonderful. I mean, my, you know, my, uh, I, I was born and raised in Minneapolis, but I, but I also lived in the woods. My family, we lived in the woods, um, 
for a year. My family homes, my, my parents homeschooled my sister and I, and we had no running water, no electricity. We were in temperatures that were regularly like 40 below in the winter. We had to go down to the lake and have an ice auger and drill through the ice and ladle the water and bring it up to the cabin. Um, and there were no phones, not, you know, we, we were in a remote area, no roads. You can only get there by boat, snowmobile or airplane. So I have that experience of living in the wilderness. I have some experience living on a farm. I have experience living in, in New York, in London, in, in urban areas. Um, and I think that um, all of these things and then, and then working with Prince and being in the music business my whole life, um, it, it's been, it's, it's enabled me to bring a unique perspective to each community that we have worked with. And I think that a documentary on it is, would be wonderful because what I find, and I think you probably find the same thing, is that you're kind of friends with a whole variety of people. And if they could all just get in the same room, they'd realize that they really do dig each other and they, they love each other. Ultimately, I believe ultimately that our whole human family loves each other. I do, at the root. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully, I don't know, uh, do you, uh, you know, just recently there's been, you know, two presidential debates and well, the next one is going to happen real short. And, you know, this seems to be right now, again, we are so fixated on division rather than unity. What do you see over the next year, two years? I mean, I hopefully, you know, if we get out of this, this thought that there's going to be a magic cure for COVID or there's going to be, like you said, a mission to improve our immune systems and to do all those things collectively that we need to do to battle not just this pandemic, but the next one that's coming right behind it. What do you see the next year, next two years? You know, it's tough to make projections. Um, I can tell you what I want to see. I focus on solutions. Um, I don't bury my head in the sand, but I focus on solutions. Uh, I do see a lot of innovation during this time. I, I see a lot of people really being touched by kindness in spite of all of the conflict that we also see. I think there's more kindness happening than conflict um, because if you look in neighborhoods, people are just, they're, they're doing their thing. And um, so I'll tell you again, that healthy communication is critical. Um, my own experience with, with going through a phase in, in my life where I thought verbal slaughter was really fun and and I felt in control and I felt uh, you know that nobody could hurt me if I could hurt them first. Um, I, I really did have a, a moment on several moments on my knees forgiving um, asking for forgiveness and forgiving myself for the verbal damage that I had done to my relationships. Um, so having leaders who are actively healing our world from the root, who are actively aware of the power of words, which I mean, if you, if one believes in the Bible, then they know that Proverbs and the Bible is fraught with um, words of wisdom about how words can, can build up a city or burn it down. Um, and th that um, the power of words is, is really important. So I, I pray to God that we all get in touch with that understanding of, of how we're all connected and, and how we do not serve ourselves well when we, when we engage in verbal slaughter and, and broads and any kind of judgment, um, and that we can learn to love ourselves and each other 
Um, so that's what I, I, I think that ultimately we will. And I think that hopefully people will be inspired after watching this to take personal responsibility for what they put in their mouths, for getting exercise, for turning the, the channel. If it's, if you're looking at some like, you know, show about people arguing or some dismal um, future for, for our world, turn it off. Because if that's not what you want, don't focus on it and don't support it. All right. Well, I can't say thank you enough, Tasha, for being a part of today's show. And I'm hoping that, you know, I wish you very well with Urban Farming. And I know we're working on a couple of initiatives together. So let's keep our fingers crossed. And hopefully they will at least start to that snowball rolling down the hill. Because I think all we have to do is just get one foot in the door in one school district. And then it's going to take off, I think, like crazy. And I think there's no greater time and no better time right now in the world than for your initiative on Urban Farming. Because, again, there are so many people out there who are in need and going to bed hungry that we could fix ourselves just as a community, like you said. But we did during World War II, urban gardens, or really victory gardens, created almost 50% of all of America's agriculture. We could do that again today. There would be nobody home, uh, hungry at all in the United States. So I thank you so much for being here. You know you always have a home here if you want. I got to thank all our viewers for tuning in and being a part of Free Thinking with Montella Day. And Taja, if they want to find out more about you, where do they go? You can go to tajasavelle.com. You can pick up my book on Amazon. And I just want to say, pick up One Last Lunch. It's about having a last lunch with someone who's passed away by Erica Heller. And my lunch in this is with Prince. He was a healthy eater. And uh, he, we, we have wonderful conversations about how to heal our world. So you'll see, uh, a, you'll, you'll read about a, a great lunch uh, with Prince and many others, Robin Williams, Steve Jobs, et cetera. I just wanna thank you so much for what you're doing Montel and for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely, hold up your other book too so people can see that one. What's the other book, hold that up. I wanna make sure so you- So this know. one's called From the Root. From the Root. From the Root, a memoir and a philosophy for balance in our world. And you can and get it's got a lot of lot of solutions, including high bonds, human infrastructure bonds, which we didn't get into. But um, really developing the human infrastructure is a big part of creating wealth in impoverished areas and all over yeah, affluent areas as well. So, um, yeah, you can get that at Amazon also. Amazon as well. All right, for sure. So make sure you click on Amazon and pick up a copy of both of. Taja's books. And again, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel. Make sure you tune in to the next edition of Free Thinking with Montel.